This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, greetings once again. You've got the DLR Cast, the podcast by and for fans of the Diamond One, Diamond David Lee Roth. I'm Steve, as always, joined by my good friend, Darren, save it for the air, Paltrowitz. <laughs> Sidebar, Darren Paltrowitz over there here. There we go. Exactly. It's, it's great to connect. And that's the first part of it, because let's face it, uh, there's such a drought of David Lee Roth news that every time we get on the air, it's 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 partially an excuse to catch up on things. But let me ask you, before I weigh in, have you heard anything about Diamond Dave? I have not heard anything. Was there some artwork last week that was posted maybe that looked really cool? Once again, something that I went, yeah, I don't know what the hell that means by that, but I'd, I'd frame it. I would look cool on my wall. Do you remember what day in particular he posted that artwork? Uh, and it's, it's okay if the answer is no. I do not remember, my friend. Eddie no. Van Halen's birthday. Ah, oh, so, Christ. So, <laughs> so status quo here, you know, <clears throat> Wolfgang, love you, Pop, miss you. Sammy Hagar, hey, miss you, Ed, we were best friends or whatever. You know, everybody's doing their Eddie tributes, and here's Dave with artwork. Okay. <laughs> now, read between those smudgy acrylic on canvas lines. Yeah. Is was I don't remember anything telling or about or any I couldn't get and I can create some good ones and you're even better at it. I couldn't get any hidden messages out of that I, artwork. Absolutely nothing to quote the movie UHF. Absolutely I, nothing. I, uh, nothing's there. I suppose it could be a little bit. Uh, it, w- it could be. I suppose it would have been. We would have been really shouting from the rooftops if it was another one of those strange Frankenstrat guitar things that he did a couple weeks ago that just, let's just say I wasn't a fan of that whole uh, series of artwork up there and, and, and the resulting commotion that went on by him claiming credit for it, which was just like one of those, I hate to say it. But we always say we're not fanboys. Those often cringe-worthy moments that uh, Dave yeah. gives us at times. But I heard from a source I am not going to identify that not all of the art that he posts was painted that week. Oh, I'm so sure it wasn't. It has been sitting around. Oh, I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure he's got. Yeah. I mean, there's a backlog, and for all we know, whoever's posting it could be using Hootsuite and just scheduling posts at random. Yes. We have yes. no idea if that was by design. We don't know. Uh, does Dave remember Eddie's Van Eddie Van Halen's actual birth date every year? Does it? Does he happen to look at the calendar and went, huh, it's January. Oh, today's if always if he had an assistant, which he can afford an assistant. Oh, he no doubt has one. <laughs> If you had an assistant and you were running it like an office, you would have anniversaries, birthdays, big events. You'd know what day the Super Bowl was. You'd know what day the the Jewish high holidays were. So you don't call the person on the wrong time. You would have all that out there. So I would assume if there's an assistant, Eddie's birthday would be on that calendar. Yeah, I I would imagine. I would think so. But that means that it's pegged to post on that day i mean i'm I'm inferring of course if i'm running social media i'm 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 finding reasons 
Well, I mean, listen, when you're doing a social media calendar, you're 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 looking at the calendar and you're deciding what days you're not going to post certain right. things on different days because one, it might not get as much traffic. Two, it's just eh, might not be a good look. Right, but uh, some buzz I heard again from an unnamed source is there is nothing going on in that camp. Like that, I say that because it's the opposite of. Oh, there's something coming. Oh, there, there, there's something in the works. There, it's it's quiet. So, <clears throat> I wish there was something resembling a strategy. I've been thinking there, about this recently in yeah. regards to the lost John Five album, save for but three tracks. And I was thinking that, thinking of this also in regards to part two of our interview with Melissa Reiner, uh, Dave, uh, the woman who played violin on, on the uh, uh, No Holds Barbecue film, and uh, and the music, and makes a brief appearance in the actual movie. And so what I'm getting at is, I wish there was some sort of strategy to actually release this stuff. Drop a track a week, or every or yeah. once a month, and just get it out there. And just start putting it out there. And you don't even have to put it all together in an album, which I would love to see to actually have yeah. something. Can you imagine a cool digi pack or something with Dave's artwork inside of it? I yep. mean, we something for us to get, to buy, to hold, to listen to, to hear. I mean, the music from Noel's Barbecue, all those cover songs, the stuff in the vaults that we always yeah. talk about. Some sort of strategy versus you and I messaging each other on some <laughs> random Thursday night. Dude, did you see that Dave just posted some song? Yeah. That's what yeah. we get. That's that's all we get. Well, well, my wormhole keeps getting deeper and deeper. I didn't know until the last week that Dave had a different second guitarist on those Kiss dates than he did in Vegas. <laughs> there was a different guitar player for those 20 shows. Really? Yes. It was I not guess. Frankie Lindia on guitar. It was Jake Fawn, F-A-U-N. A... Another L.A.-based guitarist of British descent, not, well, I shouldn't say another because Frankie is not British, but another L.A.-based guitarist, totally different guy, did all those shows. Wow. So, so the drummer changed in the middle of the Kiss dates. This one I confirmed. And the guitarist changed between the Vegas 2020 run and the 2020 Kiss dates. So, so there's even more turnover than it goes. And I spent even more time on my rabbit hole and I found somebody posted like 45 seconds of a friends and family ish gig that Dave did in two, in 2019 before Vegas at SIR studios. And that is Chris Griotti on lead guitar. And I believe you do see Brett Tuggle playing on stage there as well. Wow. So, so this, this rabbit hole just keeps continuing to, prompt more questions than answers. I would bet you've got some sort of Glenn Beck circa early 2000s chalkboard with like all sorts of uh, 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 flow charts and organizational charts and arrows. I, I would bet that you've got a wall somewhere in your office there that looks like one of those CSI or, or uh, you know, crime things where they have the masking tape out and the post-it post notes all over the place. What if this? Who was guitar here? Why was this person out for three dates? <laughs> it yeah. is, it yes. is like unraveling a mystery. So the more I, this is, this is where I'm at right now on Dave from 2019 to present day. So the backing band was originally uh, Rocket Rashad's son, Kane on drums, the bassist, 
was Ryan Wheeler. The guitarist is Chris Griotti. And then there was a second guitar player named Andrew. I'm forgetting his name right now. He he lasted through the rehearsal gig. He was a cool Keith Richards looking guy and Tuggle on keyboard and guitars. And, and hold on, this was as of when? What was what's your time frame there for that lineup you just mentioned? 2019, when he knew, hey, I'm gonna do these Vegas shows in 2020. Okay, now did that lineup go out and actually play any dates? Just this rehearsal show. Okay, because that's what I thought. Because the moment you said Kane. I was reminded that, wait, of the interview we had with him in uh, Rocket several episodes yes. ago, which a little sidebar we talked about, for those who didn't hear last week's, uh, the most pri- the episode number 54, we talked about this amazing David Lee Roth concert I found on YouTube back yeah. that was posted in de- December 20th of 2021 from California radio show, where they played eight songs from Your Filthy Little Mouth with... First time I ever heard him on video or on audio, Rocket Rashad, Rashad and he's killing it live. Yeah, that it's a kick-ass concert. Yeah. So I digressed a bit, but so that lineup you just mentioned, January of uh, uh, when was it? You said I think it was spring 2019. Okay, I was gonna say spring 2019 because the Kiss dates. Well, that's middle. So figure that's that was mid-year. winter 2020. So the Kiss dates weren't were 2020. We're 2020, yeah, because that was the last show, last big show I saw, March of 2020, before everything got shut down, was Kiss and David Lee Roth in St. Paul, Minnesota. Yes, so that band, eventually, uh, Andrew was let go, Chris was let go or quit, and Brett Tuggle found his way out and into Lindsey Buckingham's band. Right, that we know. So we know that. So eventually, Alistrata comes in, and Frankie comes in. So those are the two guitars. And Mike Musselman is on drums like he was for that rehearsal show. Right. We still have Ryan Wheeler on bass. Then somehow in the midst of that, Danny Wagner, go the former drummer and keyboardist in Warren, somehow goes from being drum tech to keyboardist in place of Tuggle, who was the MD and sees his way out. So the MD changes as well. You follow me so far. I'm having a really tough time with it. <laughs> then at a certain point in time, we we land on the lineup that plays the Vegas 2020 shows, which is Mike Musselman on drums, Frankie Lindia and Alistrada on guitar, Danny Wagner on keyboard, Ryland, Ryan Wheeler on bass. Somehow, after these Vegas shows, Frankie Lindia is gone. He's replaced by Jake Fawn the guitarist that I've just learned about, who also has long blonde hair, like Frankie, also is from L.A., also can shred and is awesome, but he's British. He's not from L.A. uh, originally. Then somehow in the midst of that, a couple of shows into the Kiss tour, Mike Musselman is not on drums anymore. And Mike Musselman, who we kindly had on this podcast and was awesome, and is replaced by Francis Valentino, who remains. So... So refresh everyone's memory. Why did Mike Musselman leave in the middle of tour dates again? Uh, uh, do you remember our interview with Kane where he said that Dave is very hard on the drummers? Yes. And that's what I was going to bring up. After Greg Bissonette, there is a long list of drummers that Dave uh, didn't played for, played with, basically. And a good number of them, not for very long. Yeah, um, I'm still working on this Roth mystery as well. So, 
<laughs> you, you you probably have steam coming in out of your ears. But uh, the DLR band album is not the same lineup on all the tracks. And there's two tracks where the bass player is Tom Lilly, L-I-L-L-Y. And okay. I reached out to him and he might be speaking with us in the near future. Great guy. Nice guy. Uh, he had nice things about uh, playing with Dave. Nice things to say about that. And I'm like, so did he do anything besides, you know, playing on those two songs? He's like, yeah, I helped uh, Dave with auditioning a drummer that he tried out that, you know, we didn't hire. And like, wait, what? So Ray Luzier was not the only drummer. <laughs> then wow. he said something like, and Billy Sheen wasn't available. And you're like, wait, Billy was talking to Dave? Because didn't Billy Sheen leave the DLR band in like a not? You mean Dave, the Eat Him and Smi- Smile band? Yeah, he like so. He, yeah, it was after Skyscraper, and basically it was a long. I mean, nobody said the quote unquote time honored musical differences, but that's kind of what it was. I mean, I don't even know if there was an official announcement, but over, I mean, or kind of an official, let's say, um, uh, talking point. But it was pretty much. I mean, he had no so, no songwriting credits on on Edelman's on um, your filthy Skyscraper. little of skyscraper geez right. i don't think he had any songwriting credits and played backup vocals and it was just i mean it was certainly quite the different record than need him and smile as everyone knows and so yeah. i think it was kind of just the musical direction uh uh directed in a different place for billy and for dave i guess yeah so what i'm getting at is i don't think that the musical chairs is a new thing we we saw with rocket i think we've We've done the math. Rocket came in and out of the band three times. It, it, I believe that's what we figured out. And then Desi Rex was on guitar for like some of the Little Ain't Enough world tour that mostly was around Europe. And <laughs> so these musical chairs, the more I think I've figured it out, the more players I just keep discovering. And it it makes you think that with this over analysis of everything's going on, that he's not just sitting in his home, not thinking about the music. I think that he's thinking about stuff and the retirement was never on the table. Wow. That, where... that's, that's where the sidebar master is, is at now. <laughs> am I, am I way off base here in surmising? That's a big word surmise in going, the, the lineup has changed this many times. The plan has changed this many times. He was never going to re- retire. That was a marketing angle. Am I, am I insane for saying that? Um, I don't think so. And I've, I'm puzzled by that as well because, uh, well, why? I don't, here's the deal. You announce it, especially at this age. I mean, you look like a, you just I think the plan was I think I think it had to be a, I think it had to have been a bit more that would just be almost too obvious. Right. And and. In the event that something happens where, oh, I don't know, during a global pandemic, you can't do any of the dates at all for whatever reason, whether you get it or you don't want to tempt fate because some band members have got it or who knows. I mean, it was I mean, Omicron was taken off like crazy. I mean, it was just yeah, it, it wasn't, you know, we're talking here February 1st. I have confirmed that he he himself did not have Omicron. I can confirm that. Okay. And 
Is it Omicron or Omicron? Because one sounds cooler than the other. I'm, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure. They both sound something that. Uh, <laughs> either, rem- either, either way, he did not have it. That was confirmed. Yeah. So he's he's fine. They both pronunciations remind me of uh, the remnants of some cosplay cosplay convention in a Radisson hotel somewhere in the Midwest. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I I had guessed I might bet that he did not have COVID. I, if anybody could be in a bubble and stay away from the fray and possibly getting sick with it, it would be him. But remember too, the guy's sixty eight years old or whatever. So if it's COVID related. That, mm-hmm. So there's another mystery. If it's not him, which you can confirm it's not, yeah. it's got to be a band member of somebody. Nobody's speaking, right. nobody's saying anything. People get better from COVID. Most Correct. of the, 98%, whatever the, it, every single band that's had to cancel dates have rescheduled dates. Why weren't these rescheduled? Well, 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 well. So I, I think if you time. announce, if you announce, what I'm getting at, if you announce you're retiring, it can't be a marketing ploy because in the event that like everybody else the odds are so great you're going to have to cancel and reschedule because of COVID. And you say you retired. I mean, it's just, it's kind of, you can't get more anticlimactic saying that that's it. It's like, it's Lucy pulling away the football or it's, it's uh, <laughs> the line in the sand that keeps moving. You know, it's, it's like, okay, that's it. Once these dates happen in March, we're retiring. Yeah. We, again, it makes no sense to me. We So many things don't make sense on this whole thing. So, <laughs> so, in turn, um, we just have to guess, assume, and worry and wonder. And then at the same time, I check in every now and then on the Roth Army fan base uh, message board, which we've talked about a few times on this. Bo- on this yeah. Yes. Seshmeister, great guy. Some of them are great guys. They are not talking about David Lee Roth in the present tense. Everything they're saying is the past tense. Ultimate Classic Rock and Loudwire, whenever they pick up a Roth-related thing, it's all past tense. Right. When I mention his name in this household, um, my better half does not want to hear it after how <laughs> burned we were. No, after 10 <laughs> days in Vegas. No. Yeah, so what I'm getting at is like, this fan base needs resuscitation or it is dead. Unless, like, somehow they come out with the 1984 for era action figures. If they do that, there's hope. <laughs> the thing that gets me about this, well, one of the many things that gets me about this, and we had brought this up before, is that if ever there was a place for him to go out next to LA and like really retire, it's Vegas. And I said it before, my biggest fear was that these dates were going to be a, a four or five piece band mm-hmm. with really no bells and whistles, with really no risk. I mean, this is the type of thing now is the past few years, the past 10 years, he was ahead of his time with the Mambo Slammers. Now is the time to do a residency in Vegas, baby, with something akin to a mix of a hard rock band and the Mambo Slammers, or you get a horn section come out that you mess with the arrangements, you do some different things. I'm not saying you completely turn it around, but in listening to, uh, was it beautiful girls on that? Your filthy little mouth. And if I remember uh, that show back from 94 that we were just talking about, and if I can't remember, I think was it a little luck. I can't, there was a song on that. One of the other songs they play on your filthy little mouth there with the horn section and beautiful girls. It's got Dave Whalen and a great harmonica breakdown. Yeah. 
it's that sort of thing with you know some all the things he's hinted at through the years, whether via his all his influences, via what you hear in the acoustic, the little acoustic bits that always went on before Ice Cream Man, mm-hmm. the the what we know from the Mambo Slammers, what we know for previous solo records, where there's some horn dabbling and some different there's some different yeah. takes where there's a country esque song, whatever it might be. Man, this is where you go out in Vegas and do this what you've always wanted to do. I mean, it's, it's your, do you know what I mean? I mean, so I was, I was fully prepared to go. Yeah. No big surprises on the set list. These are the last gigs and he's got a faceless rock band. No offense to the guys in it, but what I'm saying, you wanted something a bit more because of him. Uh, I think that there are stars in this band that he, if he let them do press and he pushed them the way that he did Vi when he was on half the magazine covers with Vi and the Eat Him and yeah. Smile era and going, this is my band. These guys can play, have personality, look cool. They're not, there's nobody embarrassing in this band. No, but we, but those days are long gone and we discussed yeah. this at length a couple episodes ago. Yeah. I mean, Jason Becker was the last guitar player that would have shared space with them and certainly yeah. shared space was the last guitar player really to share space in any interviews or any press for whatever, you know, yeah. for an album or another project. I mean, even when he talked about how hot the solo band is, he never mentioned a name. Oh, we're doing the block and we've got, you know what I mean? Never mentioned names. No, granted, a lot of them, it was apparently a revolving door for several places, but for several of these guys. But once it settled in, there was, there is no, these guys were sidemen in the very, very definition of the word. But, uh, uh, by the way, I've heard that the block is a fallacy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember this. Yes. <laughs> I, I've heard that the 70 rehearsals does not mean that he was there. No, for but, many of them. But so. did he did he need to be? Which is a perfect segue into part two of our episode. Because if <laughs> if if you think that we're leaning in any way that uh, we're questioning Dave's work ethic or the, how serious he takes his stuff, well, we've got yet another interview, part two of Melissa Reiner, that can put any wrong uh, notion of that to to rest to bed. Because yeah. this is yet another person who said. He's very particular and exacting on how he wants things, and he should be, and he's really good at what he does. Yeah, and when I spoke with Melissa Reiner, Melissa Elena Reiner, sometimes you have to put the middle name in there to catch all the kind of stuff, and she's written a couple of novels, and she has a movie in the works. Yeah, and check the show notes. It's all in there. She's got the biggest resume you've ever seen. She's keeping and busy. a TED talk for goodness sakes. Yes, yes. We we hear some more into how Dave manages the band and how the filming and production went there for the video and an interaction that she had with Team Dave after the video. In other words, it's not like she just went there, filmed her couple of days, did the session or two, and left. There was a little more than that it wasn't quite hey i want you to tour the world with me on violin but it there was there is recognition shown the story of hey you know what you're talking about about violin and i want you to teach me stuff so this is more of this is one of those stories that leads into the dave wants to learn everything and he will outwork everyone this this is one of those interviews as opposed to god he's annoying 
one of those Dave interviews. If he's not going to master it, he's going to work his ass off to come as close as you possibly can to master it, to soak it up and learn as much as possible. You just reminded me, and when I was, and this has been mentioned several times before and in the episode, but in the Eruption book, mm-hmm. uh, Eddie met, Eddie spent in one of those Guitar World episodes, uh, Guitar World interviews, when, when Eddie was doing the press, which I think was his only interview for A Different Kind of Truth, mm-hmm. he he mentioned in particular, uh, he mentioned in particular um, Stay Frosty. And then that's Dave playing the acoustic intro on that. And Dave brought in basically the the bones of that song as an acoustic yeah. song. And he said, Dave's really good at acoustic guitar. I mean... Yeah. There's that really good video on YouTube of him playing guitar in front of the Japanese tattoo artist Hori Yoshi, where he just busts out a blues riff. Now, let's let's play devil's advocate here. Could it be that Dave just learned that one riff and he can just do that riff perfectly, like him on the steel drum or the three lines in Portuguese? Maybe, but it's a really impressive riff that he just blasts out in front of the tattoo artist. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that he's actually he's fairly proficient where I mean he he's he's got a good catalog of blues riffs in there and and some cool open tuning stuff and and I'm not saying he'd be he'd be great in 1925 wouldn't be wouldn't be laughed off a front porch in in Mississippi but for I think for what he I I think he's if Eddie's if Eddie's giving you some sort of props it's because he's yeah. you got some skills there well, then I have a question, something I've never really thought about. The acoustic intro at the beginning of Ice Cream Man, I've read a thing or two that said, oh, Dave played that. If he played that, that is a really, really good part. But then when you watch him actually play Ice Cream Man live, he's really sloppy from a technique perspective in terms of how he's playing those three open chords. So in other words, was this one of those things where he just practiced and practiced and practiced and got this intro perfect? Or did Eddie just play that? I open? think I think on record between Eddie and Ted Templeman, there was not a single guitar note from anybody else other than Eddie on that first record. No fucking way. Um there's I don't I can't I'm sorry. I don't believe it. Are you kidding? The result what? of a lifelong dream and 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 just as as well rehearsed as that band was. They do I don't think they left. I don't think they left anything a chance. I don't remember if this is from Dave's book or another Van Halen book, where they said that the Van Halen one, everything was live instrumentally, except they added in a second guitar to "Ain't Talking About Love." Like they added in a rhythm. Yeah, I think a they couple mentioned- over a couple overdubs, but everything was yeah. And yeah. I know from interviews and uh, and different things I've read through the years that Templeman has said just these guys were extraordinarily well rehearsed and they just, there was, they nailed it in the studio. What you, they, they were so seasoned and from playing so much live and being, and so yeah. good at what they do, it, they didn't have to fix, <laughs> we'll fix it in the mix. There was not a yeah. lot of that. But there, there's a mistake in eruption that they left in, you know, you would barely notice that it. it was just a flick of a switch that was wrong that changed a note. But if everything was live, then how would Eddie have put down the acoustic guitar in Ice Cream Man and then picked up the electric with Well, I mean, it might have been it might have been one take. What I'm saying is, I mean, oh. for a song oh. for, for a song like that, I mean, was it yeah. recorded those 
you know, there might have been a time where you're instead of an overdub with a second guitar play, you might go, okay, we need to fix a snare sound on that or whatever. And maybe they were rec- something like that. But for the most part, I would bet you that was recorded separately and they just put it right on the, you know, just tape it right onto the tape. So. Well, either way, uh, I'm not disputing the fact that Dave is a competent guitarist. And then no. if you look in the a different kind of truth liner notes, it mentions keyboard being played on tattoo by him. Now, granted, it's a weird Moog riff that, mm, you know, it doesn't take right. a lot of skill usually to do that kind of playing. It, it's more about the gear than it is the playing. But I'm not doubting that he didn't put the work in on oh. guitar and hence the stay frosty arrangement that's really cool and i that's your favorite song on that record i believe stay frosty yeah it really it i that song just uh, the lyrics are amazing they're just rapid fire that's some of his best lyric right we'll have to i know we've talked about this before <laughs> with with uh, with eric eric from the vh news desk i know we talked about it intermittently but god damn you're di- a different kind of truth what a, that's a hell of an album to go out on yeah. It, and I think Dave sounded great. They all sounded great. It's the heaviest Van Halen record. I stand by that. You listen to that bass sound. The rhythm section is as heavy as that's as heavy as any record that they've done. Uh, heavier than OU812, which I think that was that was produced by, I think, Andy Johns, who yeah. always brought a pretty heavy rhythm sound, befitting a guy who engineered Zeppelin records, if I remember correctly. And yeah. Dave's lyrics are just I oh, the I mean, the trouble would never. I mean, you and your you and your blues? Are you kidding me? All that album it just it kills. However, I do have a bone to pick with tattoo. The chorus is repetitive <laughs> too much. Instead of going tattoo, tattoo. I mean, I always change it to a second the second time in the chorus to just brand. I won't sing it to brand new tattoo. Just mix it up. But that's just yeah. Me. That it's still a head scratcher that that was the single. That was the thing to relaunch the band on a new record label. But, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and that's that's what you get. Uh, and but, we, got a, we got a good one. So, But what we've learned this episode is we don't know anything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we just spent 30 minutes to say we don't know a goddamn thing. <laughs> like, I've heard things from reliable sources, and those sources are going, <sighs> I don't know, man. Uh, <laughs> that's the that's the crux of a lot of that kind of stuff. But Melissa Reiner is not the only interview coming to this podcast related to the No Holds Barbecue. No, <laughs> so, we've got we've got some good interviews so, lined up and in the can. So we're coming soon. And hey, I thank you for for bearing another sidebar or twenty. <laughs> thank you for spending your time with us, folks. We all love the downloads, love the streams. Hit that like and subscribe button to the Paltrowcast when you if you're uh, watching on YouTube. And come and on, your podcast too, Steve. Come God, on, my podcast doesn't exist, man. I quit that business back in September. So this is I devote my time to the DLR cast. I so. guess you're not looking at the Change.org petition for it to come back. <laughs> Jeez, I've had I've long been ruminating uh, relaunching it in some other fashion, some other format, talking about something else, but it just goes to the rumination stage. So. Yeah, rumination. That's a great nation. That's a Roth lyric, is that? Uh, it, that it could very well could be, my friend. <laughs> I, I think that uh, eventually we'll have to come up with the Roth lyric generator. And oh, uh, somebody's got that out there. Generator. It, it really is just Mad Libs when you think about it at this point in time. It, it kind of is, isn't it? Kind of <laughs> is. 
Well, yeah. well, you know, we here's an idea for a future episode: top ten Dave sayings that we hear the most. I'm into it. I'm into it. We'll do that after our uh, "What is Dave doing this week?" episode. <laughs> no, I'm into that idea. We'll side. We'll talk about that one offline. But hey, no thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Steve for putting this all together and uh, nothing but yeah. My pleasure. Melissa Reiner up next. Thanks, folks. Yeah, till 05, 06, something yeah. like that. And I, the what he had told me when I got to interview him uh, years mm. ago was mm -hmm. that he only quit the Dave band because they didn't do new material. He felt like mm. it was a Van Halen cover band and he didn't want to do that. And so I think sure. between Dave and Korn, he played with the brothers from Stone Temple Pilots in a band that had one album on DreamWorks. So oh, I think Dave okay. was his graduation to a good career. And you find a lot of people mm. that the Dave gig may not have been the best paying thing that they ever did, but it was mm. what gave them the credits to get the real credits and have a career, a graduation of sorts. Yeah. I mean, honestly, every, I put every single person I play with on my CV because you never know when it's going to lead to something. Sometimes someone will look at your CV or look at my website or whatever. And they'll say, Oh, you played with this, or you played on this like random TV movie. It'll, you never know what's going to excite someone or what's going to make them think, Oh, you'd be good for my project. So, um, yeah, I, 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 no, I mean, Dave, it was, it was an honor to work with Dave. Now it's funny. Cause I was never like a huge Van Halen person. Like I, it's a little before my time, I think musically. And it just wasn't the kind of, I mean, I listened to Radiohead, you know, like I was definitely more of like a Brit pot person. Like I was oh, listening yeah. to like, like I was listening to Oasis and Radiohead and like maybe a little bit of like Madonna and I was into no doubt. And, um, yeah, Van Halen was just like never really on my radar, but obviously like I knew some of their big songs and and I they, I mean he's wildly famous. I mean Dave, and Dave on his own is wildly famous. Yes. Um like one of my one of my best friends from music school from Peabody who was a classical percussionist started out life as like a heavy metal rock band drummer in like when he was in high school and that got him into classical, but he was a massive Van Halen fan. Like I remember calling him when I got the gig and he he lives back east and I was like, "Dude, you're never going to believe who I'm playing with." And he's like, "David Lee Roth, that's amazing." Yeah. I'm in Dave, you know. Um so like I was thrilled, but it wasn't like, I mean, I just, I didn't really listen to Van Halen, if you know what I mean. So um, it was an amazing credit, but like, it wasn't like I knew all the songs, like I didn't know all the songs, but actually for that video, we didn't do any Van Halen. You did Mean Street, which is oh. excellent. And that's right. uh, is that's there right. another that's right. song? I'm looking at my notes here. I don't um, know. I'm glad you made notes. Cause I, I mean, I didn't even know what the hell I was playing, honestly. Like I was just like, all right. Let's let's we rehearsed. We rehearsed a lot. Um, I think, yeah, you asked about where we rehearsed. I think we mostly just rehearsed at Dave's um, Dave's place, Dave's mansion. I mean, he had this amazing, gorgeous property out in like Pasadena kind of yes. area. Yeah. And um, in, in that era, he was still rehearsing everyone at the house. I think it changed mm -hmm. sometime in the last five mm -hmm. to 10 years that it's now like you guys go to a studio and when you're ready, I'll come by. <laughs> Oh, I see. Well, he is older. I mean, I think he was really invested in the process. I think it was really exciting for him. Like, as I said, I remember recording just the ELO, just my track, which there's a lot of violin on that ELO stuff. It's like half, yes. the, half the music, half the song is violin. And then I had to record over myself seven times to make it sound like a section, um, which, but, which was great because I love doing stuff like that. It's a good, it's a challenge and I'm good at it. And I can like, and, and I remember and it was fun. And Dave was there and he's like, yeah, great. You nailed that one. And then he'd be like, no, no, let's go back that one. You know, like he just he was into it. I think he loved the process, to be honest. Like maybe he's changed. I mean, he is older, right? 
Well, older is relative because I think him at 69 years old is a lot more youthful than anybody's grandparents. It's more youthful than my parents are. My parents are not doing splits or or kicks or anything like that. Uh, (laughs) But But your parents aren't rock stars. I mean, it's like it would be I feel like it would be weird if he wasn't still youthful, you know? Yes, he is a youthful guy. And and I think that this is one of the last eras where he's at the top of his game vocally. So that mm-hmm. mean street, mm-hmm. that didn't strike you of like, hey, this is a Van Halen gem per se. That's very interesting to me what your mind must have been thinking when you were playing mean street because you weren't like a catalog diehard. No, no. Like God, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing that I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I was just trying to like, it was a lot of songs that we had to play. And I was just like, all right, I'm going to learn these songs. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to listen as much as I can to whatever like tracks they send me and, yeah, I don't think, I mean, yes, I think I must've been aware in my head that Mean Streets was Van Halen, but I think it was more like, yeah, I just was, I, I wasn't like, what is the significance of this to Dave? It was like, what is the significance of this in this project? And how can I make sure that my part sounds good? <laughs> you know, yeah. a, a, but, a funny, weird, quick ongoing story. But, but mm. before I cut myself off and then give you the floor to talk about what it is that we should be looking for besides your short mm. film that's now in festivals mm. is one of Dave's security guards or his main one is a guy named Animal. And oh, yeah. He was in the background of a couple of scenes there. He was on. Is, he, is he the black guy? Yes. OK, yes, I remember him. He was yeah. easy ease bodyguard, bone thugs mm-hmm. in harmony before uh, Dave. And right. so I've been trying to track him down. All right. To uh, ultimately interview him because that guy was around for everything. And I found him on Facebook and Mm. I wrote, hey, animal, it's Darren, blah, blah, blah. And Facebook immediately flagged me for hate speech because calling somebody an animal. Oh, (laughs) no. Oh, my God. Hate speech and bullying and harassment. And then you think about the video that you were in about how unguarded it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe some things are better now in 2021, but a lot of things aren't. (laughs) Well, it just makes me, I think, you know, I think the thing about anything problematic, you know, whether it's like putting animal in a turban shirtless, I mean, you must've seen that instead of one of the scenes, right? And, And all the girls and the various costumes, some of which they're less covered up than others, some of which they're actually naked, all that stuff, all that stuff, it still happens today, right? We just, we put more scrutiny on it. And, I, but I think it's also a matter of, do you say yes to the gig? And, and I'm not, and I, and, and yes, there's a lot of me too stuff that has happened in every part of the in- entertainment industry and beyond. I mean, in politics and like there, it's a, it's been a hard world for women for a long time. And I, and I'd be the first to say that, but as mm-hmm. I said, like, I always felt, but maybe this is my privilege feeling like I could say no to a gig, but if I didn't feel comfortable I, I felt like I could say no, but you know what? I was hardly ever made to feel uncomfortable. And I certainly was comfortable on Dave's gig. Like it was interesting. I did notice the way, and this is not to talk, talk, um, talk badly of Dave, but I felt like when he would come into like the makeup room or to check on everybody and how they're doing, I felt as if the way he talked to me was a little bit different from the way he talked to the bunnies. And it wasn't, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't worse. He, he, well, he wasn't worse to them, but I felt like there was more of a level of familiarity with them that perhaps just comes with the fact that they were wearing less clothing and they were, they had a very different job on his video, which was to be the party They're They bring the party, right. You know, they're supposed to be like 
wiggling around and looking amazing and, and, and propping Dave up, propping up his masculinity, so to speak. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas my role was being part of his musical prop. You know, we are, we, I was, I was a girl, but I was there to help make him sound great. And he does sound great. Um, so, but I did feel like he was always really respectful to me the way he would be like, oh, you look amazing today. Like he would compliment me. It's not like he was hands-off uh, uh, verbally. He was, he was hands-off physically. Let's, let's right, be right. back there. He was totally hands-off, but, but verbally he was so like, he would, he would be really complimentary, but like not at all in a sleazy way. And I felt like he wasn't sleazy to the bunnies in front of me at least, but it was more like there was a more of a level of joking and perhaps his guard was just more down because I don't know if that's just Dave or if the fact that Playboy bunnies even existed in, in, in this world that men felt that they could talk to them in a certain way. I don't know. Um, I, I didn't get to know any of them well at all. Um, the triplets were really sweet. They were definitely the friendliest of the, all the girls. Um, and, but I, I kind of got the feeling that they were all enjoying themselves. You know, I could be wrong, but it felt to me like no one was being exploited. They were, they knew what the gig was when they signed up. Like this yes. is what they do for a living. They wear skimpy outfits or no outfits and they look great. And that's part of the drill. Now, part of the drill is not being manhandled or worse. I hope that didn't happen. I didn't really see anything like that. Um, it really, as I said, it felt more like, like a fun, like a party atmosphere, but there could have been plenty of things I didn't see. I just didn't think, feel like that was Dave's vibe though. Like Dave can get girls, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's an, it's an act that, Mm -hmm. that he's you know yes. careless or, or anything yes. like that and i think yeah. that you could you can take the amazing fact of i think you're the only female performer to have played with dave on oh, stage wow. ever oh wow past or present roxy petrucci the drummer from vixen supposedly she auditioned and almost had the gig mm. in the in the mid 80s but oh, wow. i think okay. you're the only past or present so oh, wow. at the very least, that's something to pass along in your legacy. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's, re that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, well, so that leads me to actually a really very kind of sweet story that I was going to share with you. So after the fact, like quite a bit after the fact, I cannot remember when. I'm sorry. My memory is very hazy from it was like 20 years ago, right? More than 20 years, possibly, um, since we're not even sure when it actually happened. It might have been like 99 now that I think about it. But um, any. Yeah, it could be, right? Could be, because who knows how long it took them to put it together and then the VHS, VHS tape arrived in your mailbox. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, the point is, months later, probably, like a long time later, his assistant, who I think his name was Matt. That sounds Matt familiar. Sensio? Matt. That's right, Matt Sensio, you know, of course, you know, great. Yeah, so I, as I said, I actually have an okay memory, but it's like, I, I needed it jogged. By, by, you need by to you put it towards by... actually like being a mother and like working and yeah, I have to put it towards yeah. trivia. So there you yeah. go. Yeah, okay, good. good. Investigating yeah, so remember... people in trivia, yes. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, so months after the fact, I think, um, uh, I get this call from Matt and he's like, hey, hold for Dave. And I was like, oh, okay, great. I mean, it still like amused me, even though I lived in Hollywood, I wasn't talking to that many celebrities. I was, you know, getting hired for gigs. So like to be told to hold for someone just still makes me laugh. I don't know. Oh why. yeah. But um, anyway, so I hold for Dave. And so Dave gets on the phone. And, and he says, hey, hey, Melissa, you know, how are you? You know, whatever, great, hope you're well. Like, you know, he's, he's polite. And then he launches in, he's like, hey, so I've decided I want to learn all about the violin. I've become like super into the violin. I want to know all about the violin and I want you to teach me. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. How, what, how do you want me to teach you? Like, what, what are you looking for? That's great. And he's like, okay, I want musically, I want you to go to Tower Records, 
just buy whatever, buy all the, all this different music for me to listen to. I want you to get me all these different albums that like show the violin. He's like, Matt, will give you whatever you want. Like get whatever you want. Like there's no budget. I was like, okay, you know, great. This is when we still went to tower records and bought CDs, right? <laughs> Back in the day. Um, but he said, he said, but listen, he said, I don't want you to just buy me like the typical violin pieces that everyone knows, things that are always played. I want you to, um, uh, I, I want to know what you listen to. I wanna know what was formative for you. I wanna know what's influential for you. And he said, I, and he said, he gave me a huge compliment then. He said, I love the way you play. I think you're a really great musician and I want your sensibilities. I want what kind of made you become the violinist that you are, which was really a huge compliment. Um, and I was really honored. I was like, thank you. You know, it truly means a lot. And, um, and, you know, Hollywood's a tough place and being a musician in Hollywood is, is not easy. So to get a, get something like that after the fact from someone as famous as Dave, especially months after working with him was really made me feel good, you know? So anyway, so I said, okay, great. So let me get this straight. You want a certain number of CDs and you want it to be just like really unusual violin music, you know, right? Something that's like something I love, but that might not be to everyone's taste. Anyway, whatever. So we talked about it a bit more and I said, great, I look forward to this. This will be really fun for me. So I, I kind of made a list for myself of things I thought might be interesting. And then I went to Tower and I found all these things that were, I think I gave them some like, um, some Django Reinhardt and uh, there's this really, uh, Stefan Grappelli. It's a pretty famous jazz. Oh, I think he's, I think he's been dead for a little while, but he's like an older um, uh, French jazz violinist. And he's amazing, amazing. Uh, but it's totally different from something that like I would do. Like I can't play like that, but I also thought it was really fun and different. So, mm -hmm. so that's something like that. And then I remember I got um, a bunch of uh, sonatas by, uh, and then a very classical, but very kind of like super almost atonal, like early 20th century music um, by this um, Belgian virtuoso named um, uh, Eugene Isai. And he wrote these six solo sonatas for the violin and they're incredibly hard. They're like extremely virtuosic. He apparently, he was a violin virtuoso himself and then he wrote them. And apparently he wrote them in like an opium fueled haze in like a week, which I don't know if I believe this story, but you know, what, who knows, but right. it's, they're from like 1917, maybe something like that. Pretty early 20th century, but they're really crazy pieces and they're amazing and they're classical, but they're so strange and almost bordering on atonal that they're, they're, they're just, they're, they're so hard. They're not played very much. And they're so strange musically that people don't listen to them like that often. So I remember I found that for Dave, cause I just thought, it's so weird and different and no one else is going to tell them to listen to that. Like even people that know a lot about classical music might not necessarily know those pieces unless they're real like violin geeks. You know what I mean? And so you gave them those CDs and then did yeah, you so get those, a... Yes, I can't. And I can't remember. I can't remember what else I gave them. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think I bought about six to eight CDs. I mean, I just find, I tried to find stuff that I thought was really unique and cool, but that also really important. Like I didn't want to only just give them weird stuff too. I got them. So I think I probably gave them like, the Brahms Violin Concerto, which is like a huge violin repertoire piece, but it's so beautiful. And if you want to learn about the violin, you you have to listen to the strange and the beautiful. But I tried to pick beautiful that wasn't like something that you hear on the radio all mm -hmm. the time. Do you, does that make sense? Totally makes sense. And if I can add on to it, I don't know if you're going to tell me more about And then he calls me and goes, this music sucked. No, no, I'm kidding. I don't oh, know. Yeah, no, 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 no. The, I think just, I think, um, I think maybe Matt might've like sent me a text like a couple weeks later saying, Hey, Dave really liked it. Thanks so much. That was cool. You know, they, he, the, the CDs worked out or something. I, mean, I, don't so know. I don't That then like leads to my theory of the man says, I'm going to learn everything I can about blank. I'm going to get somebody who knows that to show me this stuff. I'm going to experience it. I'm going to memorize it. And then anytime somebody takes me to test to it, 
I'm going to immediately wow them with a five to seven minute spiel or demonstration. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so but then that I makes mean, it a go. Yeah. Did he ever work with a cello player? And they go. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I feel like, I mean, cello is in so much kind of rock and pop music. It's actually more popular than the violin, I think, because it actually has a, a slightly better um, timbre and yeah. range. Um, it can kind of go nicely with a with a human vocals, whereas the violin is so treble, it can sometimes interfere with human vocals. So um, it just kind of depends on the vibe a band wants to go for. But um, I definitely, I've done a lot of gigs with rock cello, and I know a lot of friends who've done a lot of really fun gigs with their, using their cello as more of a rock instrument. Um, but yeah, you know, I think the thing about Davis, he just, I think he's a pretty curious person. That was the mm -hmm. feeling I, like he was curious about things. He, I think he had kind of a vor voracity for life. You know, he, he, yeah, he wanted to learn. I think he wanted to just like drink in life. And if life brought him like violin, then he might want to learn more about the violin. And if, you know, if life brought him to wanting to be an EMT, want to get out there and save some lives, you know, I, I don't know because I, you know, I didn't get to know him personally, but just from watching him operate and working with him, the, the bit that I did, I got the feeling that he was, he was like pretty intellectually hungry, actually, which is not something I would say about every musician I've worked with. And, you know, back to you and what you're up to these days. I mean, your credits, Dave is not even the tip of the iceberg. That's, it's like <laughs> a fraction of the tip of the iceberg. A.R. Rahman. Yeah. Dr. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed you know about him. I'm, I'm, that's cool that you know who he is. He's really amazing. Oh, and then he had that super group with with Mick Jagger and Joss Stone. That. I got to interview Joss Stone a week or two ago, oh, wow. and oh, everyone's amazing. in awe of him. Yes. Oh, oh, he's incredible. So actually, that's a really fun. That was a really fun gig because I got to work with him before he was really famous in Hollywood. So it was quite. I think it was just a different. It was not that he necessarily changed, but I mean, it was just a different vibe. Probably he was. He was super famous in England. They. I mean, they in England. Well, he's famous in England. They, he was famous in India, but like the Indian diaspora is all over the world. So people, people who are from sort of Indian or, or Pakistani or Bangladeshi heritage were obsessed with him. Everyone loved him. I mean, I met, I met people in England who were obsessed with him. And I met people in, in America who were from the diaspora that they oh, yeah. didn't grow up in India, but they loved him and they were very into Bollywood and, you know, his soundtracks and everything. But so I, but it was, it, it, it was kind of fun that I got to play with him. Um, it was through a very random connection. He ended up working with an old friend of mine and I can't remember how he met him, but my old friend was like a, a choir director and, a, and, and arranged music. And he was back East. He was a, 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 a university college choir um, director. And he said, I cannot remember how they met, but they ended up working together. And, and, and my friend was a really beautiful arranger. Like he could write just amazing, like vocal and I think, you know, uh, symphonic musical arrangements um, for for Raymond. So he did a lot of like trying to convert some of the Bollywood stuff into making it um, concert wise, like concertizing so that they could play in like in, in so not just with because A.R. Raymond always had like his own Indian kind of backup band, so to speak. So there usually would be like a cellist and a violinist, but also lots of more kind of traditional instruments. Um, uh, so, you know, the drums, um, that, that kind of thing. So anyway, sorry, I'm rambling. Let me be concise for you. My friend who got me the gig, uh, my friend who got my friend who got me the gig uh, was getting Raymond to come. It was actually a really big thing for my friend. He got A.R. Raymond to come and perform with his university choir. He, he was at um, University of uh, Miami, Ohio. So out in Ohio. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. And so Raymond came to perform with a couple of um, like backup singers and he brought his cellist from India, who's this really great, great guy who I'm still like friends with on Facebook and stuff. Um, uh, he, he just brought a couple people out from India for these performances, but he wanted to play this violin concerto that he'd actually written for Vanessa May and she had recorded, but she had never um, performed it live. I think she just recorded it for one of her albums. So when Ray Raymond said to my friend, who's this director, choir director, he had all these singers, but he didn't have a violinist. And he said, oh, I really want to play this violin concerto. And my friend was like, oh, I have this old friend this from we went to the Aspen Music Festival together when mm -hmm. I was like 14. And Aspen is like this huge classical music thing. It's like most of the people from Juilliard go there every summer. Like, And so my friend had gone out there to study in the summer and studied cello. And he ended up becoming more of a singer and a choir director himself. But that's how I'd met. We'd met when we were teenagers. And we kept in touch and we, we knew each other in L.A. And so when he got this gig with Raymond, he said, oh, I know a violinist. So I got to play this incredible violin concerto. And this is kind of like the David Lee Roth gig in terms of it was before social media. So I never got like a great copy of me playing it. And it was it was amazing. We played at like a couple of arenas in like Michigan and Ohio for like 10,000 people. I mean, it was these were like sold out concerts. People came from all over who were mostly people of Indian background came to watch Raymond perform in Ohio and Michigan because I don't know if he's ever been back to those places since. Probably um, not. <laughs> yeah, probably. So it was a really big deal. It was actually this really incredible thing, but he hadn't worked in Hollywood. So he was just like, he wasn't surrounded by anyone Hollywood, if that makes sense. He just had his Indian people with him that were like his crew that he really trusted for like his whole career. And then my friend was an old friend that he had worked with on doing all these arrangements. And my friend had been to India and performed with him in India. And so I actually performed with Raymond a couple of times. I did some stuff with him in LA that was not solo. It was just like putting together a string group for him. And then after that, that's when I went out and I did the, the violin concerto. But it was a really amazing piece, like really beautiful and really obviously very kind of Bollywood inspired. But um, that yeah, that was a great gig. And it was unfortunate that I didn't get to work with him again more. But just, you know. Hey, Slumdog Millionaire had to take off and make him a yeah. superstar. What can you yeah, do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> So all that said, like Dr. Dre and AR and Sinatra Jr. and Posthumous Sr. and the Jonas Brothers, and David Lee Roth, you have credits that impress no matter what you listen to, they impress the Thank people. You. So Thank you. Very kind. So there's the TED Talk. There's the yeah. novels. You might come back to that. But sure. in, the, in the meantime, what's the best way to follow you online? Is it uh, at Melissa Violinist? Um, uh, yeah, I, so I'm on Twitter. I think all my handles are the same. It's at Melissa Violin. Violin. Um, yeah, at, Mel yeah, at Melissa Not Violin. Violinist. Okay. No, no, just, I don't know. Melissa Violin. It was just like, yeah. it was simple. I kept it that way. So I think that's my, I think that's my handle on, on Instagram and Twitter. I mean, I'm really not great with social media. Like I, I don't use it very much. My, um, I would definitely, if you requested me on Instagram, then I would, I would, um, I would, I would follow you back, but, um, I don't use it very much. It's private right now, partly because I have my small son. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of, and my, my Facebook page, same thing. If like, if you send me a request, I'm happy to, to interact with you because now we have an interaction, but I, I shut everything everything down. It made it pretty private except for Twitter. Cause I don't talk about my son, but I'm not that great on social media. I also, I sometimes wonder if I could be better on it. Um, I mean, I don't know. It would be interesting to talk to you as a journalist, if you've ever felt like it's helped you journalism wise, or if you've seen stars that you've talked to that you think social media has really helped them. Cause I just, I find that, um, 
it feels like a slog to me. And I felt very, I think it's, it, it comes back to me not feeling like I'm a natural performer. I didn't want to be like me, 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 or here's this, here's that. And so I've never been great at self-promotion. Um, I probably need to change that, especially since I'm trying to take my filmmaking seriously. And that's a really great way to have more people see my work. So um, in terms of Instagram, I, I, yeah, I, just, I keep it private, but I also don't really use it, but I think I probably should, but I think I would just like get rid of any pictures of my son and then just start over and have it be very pro like, like my, my profile, but my profile as an artist, not my profile personally, just if that makes sense. 